Would you turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 10 today? As we continue with another installment in our Genesis series, this brings us to the proverbial table of nations, as it's sometimes called. It's a list, it's a genealogy of different people groups that have descended from the sons of Noah. The aim of this morning's message is to reveal, not by way of my ability to do so, but simply to demonstrate how the scripture does so, the hand of God in the roots and branches of world history. It is to say the scripture reveals the hand of God, and so my prayer is that this message would do the same. The revelation of the hand of God in the roots and branches of world history. Just a brief anecdote. Some of you are going to be starting school soon. Many of you have gone through the school system. Some of you are blessed to be in or have, um, are in right now or, or have experienced a Christian education. And as such, a sound Christian philosophy of education when it comes to history will acknowledge that the Lord, our sovereign God, is evident in the roots and branches of all of world history. However, this is not the common presumption, this is not the popular conclusion of our world today. Roots and branches are seen to be placed and bearing fruit in any number of other sources, any other appeals to authority, any other explanations for the source, origin, meaning, and destiny of things. Well, today, we look to the scriptures to correct these false assumptions, recognizing that our sovereign God is involved in history to, the every, to every last jot, tittle, and detail, root, and branch. The title of this morning's message is four words in succession that are repeated three times in our text today, lands, languages, clans, and nations. Genesis 10 is a record of lands, languages, clans, and nations. So let's behold God's holy word, and may I beg your pardon if I mispronounce several names today. As we read the scripture, and as you listen as it's proclaimed, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? And let us behold chapter 10 in our hearing this morning. Thus reads the holy word of God, verse 1. These are the generation of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Mesech, Tiraz, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Tagarma, and, uh, Tagarma the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kidim, and Dadanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. Verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Reason between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Labim, Nephtuhim, Pathrusim, uh, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. 
Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, the Sinites, the Avidites, Avidites, the Semarites, and the Hamathites. After the clans of the Canaanites, afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all children of, e- of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadan, Shelef, Hazer Marveth, Jera, Hodaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Could you turn with me to Acts 17 this morning? There, and uh, I will also reference very briefly Ephesians 3, 14, and 15. These are two references that exemplify how foundational Genesis 10 is for the worldview of all biblical authors and the worldview of all well-informed Christians. Again, these two verses exemplify how foundational Genesis 10 is for the worldview of Christian thought. If I asked you, how many names do you recognize in that list we just read, or if I asked myself that question, there would be several. I'm sure you recognize some from further documentation in Scripture. However, perhaps the vast majority are foreign to us. Nevertheless, Genesis 10 is absolutely foundational to the rest of Scripture. Two verses illustrate as much, or passages. First, Acts 17, 26. This is Paul preaching to the Athenians, a distant people group. They are ones who, these are people who are not the direct heirs of the word of God as it has been inscripturated in the law in the Old Testament, but are hearing through the apostle by spirit infused authority, a message of God's word for them, a distant land. This is what Paul says in verse 26. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, Paul no doubt has in mind Genesis 10 as he preaches this. He is recognizing that the lands, the languages, the clans, and the nations, including the one to whom he is addressing right now with the gospel in this passage, owe their origin story to the sovereign God of all of history. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Again, Paul is writing... In this case, 
to a distant land, to the Ephesians. And he is giving them instructions, perspective from the word of God. He's giving them the truth of the biblical worldview, if you will, with respect to history. And he does this by recognizing God's sovereignty, echoing Genesis 10, uh, Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. One of the reasons that God is so mighty, majestic, and worthy of our praise, one way his glory is shown forth, is that every single family on the earth owes its origin, the providential care, its source, its original heritage, the forefathers of the forefathers of the forefathers, all the way back to the one man, Adam. It owes its history to the mercy of God. And this is what Genesis 10 records. These names may not appear important to us on the surface, but if it wasn't for these individuals preserved in God's sovereign plan, you and I certainly would not be here today. This raises the stakes, does it not, for the importance of Genesis 10, both in our experience, more importantly, in Scripture. Immediately after the flood, and some accounts select passages from Noah's life, Moses records this genealogy marking the lineage of Noah's sons. What is a genealogy? It's a history of a family line. And which families are in focus here? They are the sons of Noah. Uh, Young people in the room, kids, who can name the sons of Noah for me today? What were Noah's sons? In the back, any answers? Noah's sons, does anyone know? Yeah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's correct, if that was your answer today. This chapter goes further than a mere list, however. There are also, you may have noticed, signal details which anticipate events to come recorded throughout Scripture which chart, and this is my primary thesis this morning, they they chart the prophecies of Noah concerning his sons, and by extension, prophecies concerning all the human race. And in a moment, I'm going to refer back to Genesis chapter 9, and we will see three uh, aspects of Noah's prophecy, each with respect to one of his sons. Noah proclaimed the word of God to Japheth and his lineage. Noah proclaimed the word of God to Shem and his lineage, to Ham, uh, and specifically Canaan, who was Ham's son, and his lineage, and so forth. And so my contention contextually here is details about this lineage are already demonstrating these prophecies of God's prophet Noah coming true in time. And we see them further unfold through the rest of recorded history, even to our time today. This chapter allows us, therefore, to view world history from a sovereign perspective, as God's purposes and plan are played out on the stage of ancient history. There are a number of unique factors, we'll just mention two of them this morning, that are also encoded in this section. Let us note these. First, there is a literary device, device, that means a way of recording information, and the Bible has some unique uh, ways of doing this. This chapter features one of them. Uh, And it is a literary device that um, involves time, and specifically the overlapping of time. If you were to read Genesis just as a novel, you would be confused or you'd think there was a mistake because sometimes the time overlaps. Genesis 10 records the events of the dispersion of the nation, and then Genesis Genesis 11, which records the accounts of Babel, 
goes back and picks up somewhere in the middle of the time uh, references in Genesis 10. So just to be aware, while you're reading Old Testament narrative, sometimes this, de- sometimes this device of overlapping time is employed. Now, chapter 10 naturally precedes chapter 11 as it sets up the context and God's sovereign plan that sets the stage for the Tower of Babel events. It's particularly highlighting in this regard the legacy of Nimrod, a city builder, but chapter 10 also transcends chapter 11 chronologically, speaking of a multi-generational sweep of time and nations. This is a mark of sovereign inspiration in Scripture. If you read a history book, if you read the newspaper, you'll likely only get events in a linear progression. This happened, which caused that, which then happened, and this and so forth, as if history was only a chain of cause and event reactions, uh, you know, in a naturalistic type of way. Typically, we write history in our day and age, in our secular era, as if we are, have a microscope on certain activities and we are watching the chemical reactions of events, actions, and reactions in the stage of human affairs. But however, this is a faulty view of history. History is a beautiful symphony of God's purposes woven together in the most fascinating, in some ways complex, in some ways simplistic beauty over the course of time, revealing his decree in real life people and every, each and every heritage of nations, ethnicities, languages, clans, and cultures All of this in this spectacular way and this sophisticated uh, tapestry, if you will, of God's purposes, revealing his glory over the landscape of time. And this is why some of these devices are used in scripture. It's to draw our attention to these aspects of God's glory recorded throughout even our and and ancient man's experience. Uh, Second literary device. There's a use of numbers, numbers that recurs. It's a pattern in Genesis 10. Uh, seven or 70 are featured. There are 70 nations that are listed. There are seven sons of Japheth. Some commentaries are helpful in this regard while I was studying this week. Seven grandsons of Japheth are listed. Seven descendants of Cush are listed. Seven descendants of Egypt. So in the scriptures, often when this use of seven is deployed, it's communicating comprehensiveness or fullness or fulfillment. The number seven often means perfection, fulfillment, fullness, and so forth. So this is a way that the Bible employs literary devices to communicate to us that while this list is not exhaustive, in other words, it doesn't give us every single person in any particular lineage, it is nevertheless, in the context, comprehensive. This use of seven demonstrates to us that the author has in mind all of world history, the total human experience, all nations without exception. So again, that sets the tone. So as we take this into view, we see this chapter refers to God's plan, God's purposes through all nations over all the earth for the entire span of of time. So with that introduction, let me give you a heading, and I'm going to have three major points this morning. God's word fulfilled through the legacy of Noah's sons. 
Again, God's word, particularly the prophecies of Noah, are being fulfilled through the legacy of his sons. And um, it occurred to me after I wrote this outline that these main points kind of sound like band names. Maybe that'll help you remember them. So think of Japheth and the Coastlands. Japheth and the Coastlands, our first rock band today. Secondly, Ham and the City Builders. And thirdly, Shem and the Significant Sons. I apologize, but I just had to mention that because it sounded so much like um, a kind of a rootsy music concert or something like that. But maybe it could be a good memory device for us. God's word fulfilled through the legacy of Noah's sons. And then the legacy is represented by these three key words, coastlands, city builders, and, and sons or significant sons. Japheth and the coastlands, Ham and the city builders, Shem and the significant sons. These are characteristics that shape the legacy of each of these branches of Noah's sons that are the fulfillment of prophecy. Verses one through five. This is also a signal moment. It's a literary device. Verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. When you see that phrase, these are the generations, this is the way Moses, the author, sets apart a unique section of his account. And so in Genesis 10, we have this. In the table of nations, signaled by this introductory phrase, these are the nations. The following is going to be a segment that is important to our understanding of human history and the heritage of all the peoples of the earth. So that's how he opens it. And then he continues, the sons of Japheth, gives this list of names, which I won't repeat. And then he'll say in verse five, from these, the coastlands peoples, the coastland peoples, spread in their lands, each his own language by their clans in their nations. Referring back to our title, lands, languages, clans, and nations of the sons of Japheth, of Japheth and his lineage, his heritage, and his sons, which are typified, they're characterized by this interesting geographical reference, coastlands, Japheth and the coastlands. Something important about the region in which they dwell is attached to their lineage. Now let's go back to Moses, or Noah's prophecy. Chapter 9, verse 25. You remember the context, don't you? So a sinful situation has taken place. Noah has fallen drunk under the influence of wine. His one son takes the occasion to do something shameful and disrespectful, revealing the nakedness of the father. His two other sons do the virtuous thing. And they walk backward with robes on, on their shoulders and they covered their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke, it says in verse 24, from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done. Who was his youngest son? Ham. When he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said the following. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And finally, May God enlarge Japheth, verse 27, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So this is a prophecy that comes by way of promise and judgment following these uh, tail end events in the account of Noah's life. And just like the lineage, the, the uh, genealogy of chapter 10 is divided by three, according to the sons of Noah, so this prophecy is divided by three. There is something proclaimed over each son unique to them and by way and by extension, their lineage. 
Now, instead of Ham, the curse falls on Canaan, who is the son of Ham, nevertheless in the same line. And what is prophesied of him? Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. So according to Noah's prophesy, Ham's line will be cursed. He will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Judgment for his sin will take the shape of generational subjugation. Uh, Secondly, Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This is a prophecy of blessing. When it comes to Shem, his line will be marked by blessing, by God's promises coming true. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Shem. Lord here in all capitals is the covenant name for God, and God is referred to in these personal terms, the God of Shem. There is an ownership relationship. There is a covenant bond between the peoples of Shem and Yahweh, their covenant Lord. So the prophecy declared over Shem is bounded, it's described, it's characterized by covenant relationship. Yahweh is the God of the Shemites. This is profound. And then thirdly, by extension, this blessing actually goes to Japheth. May the Lord enlarge Japheth. So there's an expansion of Japheth. Remember the geographical reference in Genesis 10. And there is this, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So when it comes to Japheth, there will be an expansion. He will be enlarged and he will expand to dwell in the tents of Shem. This is a threefold Noahic prophecy of the lineage of the human race. So how does this relate to the first category in our genealogy, which records a bit of the family history and this one detail of coastlands with respect to Japheth? Well, it's interesting. If you had a map and you were to ask the question, where are the coastlands? You could pinpoint through the help of other references in scripture and even some archaeological evidence, generally speaking, where the sons of Japheth settled. If you think of, in your mind's eye, where Israel you know, is located, even geographically today, and you move north into what is modern Turkey, and then even east into what would be, I suppose, eastern Bloc nations and so forth, heading toward Asia, that region is generally called Asia Minor. And if you go to the west, even as far as Spain and Italy, and some of the islands in the Mediterranean Sea, these, in fact, are the areas where Japheth's sons settled. They moved out to the further regions, the Netherlands, the farthest uh, stretches of the known world. They moved out to the coastlands around the perimeter of the Mediterranean. There's a geographical emphasis to the direction of Japheth's sons, fulfilling in part this prophecy that they would enlarge, they would expand, their territory would have the broadest reach. And so it did. All through scripture, you see reference, some of these names that are listed here in our text today will reappear, but they will reappear over, uh, you know, in this distant island in the Mediterranean Sea or north in this region in Asia Minor. They will reappear, in fact, in Paul's missionary journeys. And now we start to see some of the significance coming even more into focus. There is a destiny for the coastland peoples that is revealed as scripture continues to unfold. In other words, there's an answer to this question. What do the coastland regions have to do with this promise? 
that one day the sons of Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. This is what it is, saints. Well, uh, Shem had a covenant relationship with the Lord. He had the assurance, he had the, the, through God's word, of the promise of salvation. Pictured in the sacrifices of old, fulfilled in the significant son to come one day, and pictured all along the way by redemptive historical figures. The coastland regions were not privy to all this information. They had enlarged beyond the borders of where the focus, the locus, the center of God's revelation was occurring in and amongst the people of Abraham and so on and so forth. But one day this would change. Turn with me to Isaiah 42, a significant prophecy that builds on Genesis 9 and Genesis 10. Also, if you recall our worship text this morning, Psalm 72, these same themes are celebrated in that song. Isaiah 42, verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah, listen. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And he goes on to prophesy uh, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The coastlands sit in darkness, Psalm 72 says, and wait, if you will, for the light of God's law. But there would come a time in recorded history, even in the scriptures themselves, where the enlarged tents of Japheth would be welcomed in to the covenant of Shem as the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. And so you can pinpoint the direction of Paul's missionary journeys, and you will find him speaking to one after another descendant of Japheth in the furthest regions of Asia Minor. He even had plans designed to go to Spain, and his work continues to this day. Saints, believers in this room, Gentiles grafted in, according to Romans 11, by God's grace, you now share the same family bond, the same spiritual habitation of what was promised to Shem. Why? Because the coastlands, even today, through the proclamation of the gospel, are being gathered into the tents of Shem, who had a covenant relationship through the promised gospel with Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the salvation provider. Praise the Lord. This is God's word fulfilled through the legacy of Noah's sons, Japheth and the coastlands. Major point number two, second rock band for you. Ham and the city builders. So how does the lineage of Ham and Canaan by extension play out in a way that fulfills these words of Noah? Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Well, as we see a detail that comes forward in the genealogy, the answer to this question becomes a little bit more clear. Cush fathered Nimrod, verse 8. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. 
Erech, Echad, uh, Kelna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went on into Assyria and built Nineveh. It goes on to describe a great city. There is even a parenthetical reference to Philistines. Uh, Kazlehim, from whom the Philistines came, in verse 14. So what we see here is in the legacy of Ham, we find city builders. We find uh, three key words that are taking shape in the heritage of this son of Noah. Empire, occupier, slavery, or exile. These peoples that are in the heritage, in the genealogy of Ham, and by extension Canaan, become the troublesome enemies of God's people throughout redemptive history. I'm sure you recognize the names. When it comes to empire, do you recognize these names? Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh. Assyria was the most fearsome enemy that people could even conceive of at the time. And they declared war against the northern kingdoms. And in God's judgment, they were his hammer. They were successful. And they took uh, the Israelites captive in the north. Babylon, similarly, they were descendants of Ham. And they became arch rivals of the people of God. And when the people of God sinned, God used Babylon, like his hammer, to bring his people under discipline. Um, other examples, Egypt. Egypt served, and this goes to Noah's prophecy, Egypt, uh, in the lineage of Ham again, served uh, Joseph and his family, but then there came a shift where uh, they subjugated, the pharaohs who did not know Joseph, subjugated the people of God in slavery. And what did God do? He brought deliverance and destruction on these, the heritage this, uh, these descendants of Ham, the Egyptians at the time. Another example, Canaan, Canaanites. So Abraham is called to be a light to the nations. God promises him a particular land. But his heritage, his descendants have to wait some 400 years until what? The fullness of the iniquity of the Canaanites is complete. And again, at that point, God will intervene. And what will happen? The Canaanites will be subjugated to be servants, if you will, through war, and in some cases, total annihilation as their land is taken over by the Israelites. So this is an interesting dynamic, and this is the legacy of Ham playing out according to the prophecy of Noah. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Ideas that are associated with Ham and the city builders that follow in his lineage are as follows. The idea of the worship of a strongman or a tyrant. And we find this playing out in the very next story. Babel, the Tower of Babel, this signals it is a commemoration. It is a collective effort under the tyranny of an inspiration of a Nimrod-like figure to secure man's future. It's to elevate a mere man in the place of God. Why? Because of direct rebellion against the discipline and word of God. In this way, this impulse mirrors the rebellion of Cain. Back in Genesis 4, Cain has murdered his brother Abel in cold blood. God has punished him. He says, you will be a wanderer. Cain does not respond in repentance and faith. No, he says, my punishment, 4.13, is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. 
So what does Cain do? Does he remain a wanderer of kids? Do you know what Cain eventually did to help protect himself? He did what Nimrod did. What's that? That's correct. He built a So just like Cain rebelled against the discipline of the Lord, who commanded him that, or who uh, declared to him, you will be a wanderer as the consequences of your action against your innocent brother, shedding of innocent blood, the land pollution will drive you out from this place even further east of Eden. Just like he rebelled the word of God and said, oh, oh no, you don't. I'm going to build a city to keep me safe. So the descendants of Ham continued this Cain-like rebellious impulse. Oh no, I'm not going to be anyone's servant. I am going to dominate. So the Lord allowed them to do so when his people were under discipline. But when his people were following Yahweh and when they were in covenant with the Lord, the Canaanites became the subjects, the servants of Shem and by extension, Japheth, according to the curse, according to the prophecy of Noah. Not only do we see this idea of empire represented by the strong man, but we also see this defiance of Cain and an echo of this uh, conflict all the way back to the beginning. When God himself proclaims there is going to be eternal or not eternal, there's going to be indefinite war until God brings history to a close between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This takes shape in Cain and Abel's conflict. It further takes shape in conflict here between the descendants of Ham and then those of, J, of, of his brothers, uh, Shem and Japheth. So here we have this empire and city of man impulse. We have this legacy of Ham as a city builder in direct rebellion against the word of God. We see them as occupiers. Even in the case of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, that was their place that they had occupied against the plan and covenant of God. And 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 8 records how David, again, a significant son, which we'll cover next, uh, subdued them and claimed Jerusalem as the capital city for the kingdom eventually, and so on and so forth, paving the way for the triumphal entry of another significant son. Uh, spoiler alert, Matthew 21, 14, Jesus, who enters gloriously, crowned as king in the praises of the people into the same area that was once occupied by the descendants of Shem, Shem I'm sorry, Ham, but was overthrown by the descendants of Shem, fulfilling the prophecy of Noah, that Ham will be subjugated. He'll be the servant of the servants, if you will, of Shem. And then finally, exile and slavery. We already mentioned this, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Daniel 1, verses 1 through 2 opens, and the stage is set on the plains of Shinar. Shinar is an area that is inhabited, even as Daniel records these many hundreds, you know, centuries later, by the descendants of Ham. And here, once again, we see the people under judgment in subjugation to the descendants of Ham, when if they had stayed faithful to the covenant, the opposite would have been the case. And nevertheless, God shows, even under these circumstances, his sovereignty when these temple vessels are stolen and taken there, and eventually God brings judgment by destroying that kingdom when the vessels are misused at the feast of Belshazzar. So what do we see in these two examples so far? God's word fulfilled through the legacy of Noah's sons, Japheth in the coastlands, Ham and the city builders, and finally, Shem and the significant sons. Back in Genesis 10, the record of Shem's lineage is set apart by a couple details. 
Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the eldest brother of Japheth, children were born. Why is Eber mentioned at the beginning here? A name is taken out of order and placed at the beginning. Why? Because Eber is a significant son. This is a mark of the lineage of Shem. Shem is marked by significant sons, even before Shem himself. In the pre-flood world, there was Seth, you know, and uh, the promise was given to Eve. Eve's hopeful prayer is fulfilled when Seth is born. He's a significant son. He holds out hope for the messianic lineage. Lamech, the father of Noah, he prays and prophesies over his own son that perhaps through him rests from the wicked effects of the sinful fall, will somehow uh, there will be hope held out for deliverance from the curse. And so Noah uh, plays out this drama of salvation with the instrument of the ark, providing hope for the future of the world and the people and so on and so forth. And now this lineage continues through the line of Shem. Eber is signaled out is, as a significant son. What was special about him? Well, uh, most scholars agree that the name Hebrew, the term Hebrew, has its origins with this son of Shem. In other, in other words, I didn't know this before my study this week, but what are the origins between, behind the term Hebrews? Well, history records it likely goes back to Eber, a son of Shem. And so from him, this legacy of significant sons continues. And even in the term Hebrew, the idea of a significant son is immortalized in the name and the identity of the people. And this, of course, is repeated. Yahweh is called the God of Abraham and who else? Abraham and... What is, what is Yahweh called? He's called the God of Abraham and who's Abraham's son? Isaac and Jacob. Do you see? Again, this is the Shem uh, line God is associated with significant sons, and no less here, Eber being one. But there's another one, Peleg, if that's how you pronounce his name. Sounds kind of like a pirate. In verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So Peleg um, is listed here, is signaled out with a little snippet of earth history. When was the earth divided? 